words of Jeremiah in the days of King Josiah until the captivity of Jerusalem. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak. I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. This is the word of the Lord. Last Monday morning, I stacked up my commentaries on the book of Jeremiah. The first one I reached for was the one written by Rabbi Gunter Plout. I began to read. We think Jeremiah was only 15 or 16 years old, he wrote, when God called him to be a prophet. We know that he began to prophesy in the reign of King Josiah, that would be in the late 600s before the Common Era, and that he continued to prophesy until the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 587. Forty years, forty years, Jeremiah preached, taught, and wrote. As I continued to read one commentary after another, I was remembering that it was the first anniversary this week of the death of my mother. A year ago, it was too fresh. Didn't feel I could talk about her. I want to tell you a little bit about her this morning. I've told you my mother didn't grow up going to church. Her family were honest, hardworking people. They didn't go to church. One good reason was probably the fact that they did not have a car. Never did her mother and father own a car. Never did my father's mother and father own a car either, but they did have a horse and buggy. My mother's parents did not have a horse and buggy. They lived on the edge of a big farm in Panola County, Texas. They were sharecroppers. Half of all they produced they gave to the landowner. In the year that my mother turned 19, she married my father, who was 20. He had grown up in a house where they went to church every Sunday with the horse and buggy. It was a little Methodist church three miles outside of Carthage, Texas, built on land given by my great-great-grandfather, John Wesley Biggs. We've been Methodists a long time. And so my mother was suddenly taken to church with my father every Sunday, and she started hearing these stories for the first time. So when she heard the story of Jeremiah's call, what did she think? She decided that if God spoke in such a wonderful way to Jeremiah, he might speak just as wonderfully to her. He certainly would speak such a wonderful word to her children. I would be born two years later, my sister two years later, my brother two years later than she. To my dad as well. Let's take a look at how my mother would have understood this passage. Number one, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set you apart. That's what it literally says. I made you holy. I set you apart. I consecrated you. Before you were born, my mother decided that God had called her to be the best wife she knew how, later to be the very best mother she knew how. That would mean that she would get involved in PTA, 
She wanted the schools to be good schools in my hometown. Eventually, she would be president of the elementary PTA and finally president of all the city council PTA. When my brother got big enough to go away to college, my mom decided now she'd like to work outside the home. And she became a receptionist and secretary in an insurance business there in our hometown. Did that job for 30 years. One year with United Methodist, she had given a devotional. Someone heard that devotional and told the editor of the hometown newspaper. Yes, my mama, she had put it in writing so that he could publish it just before Easter. She wrote it down for him, and he liked it so much he said, Could you write one of those next week? Next week? And she wrote a weekly column for the Panola Watchman for the next 30 years. When I was a little boy, I remember her tucking me in at night and saying, I don't know what it is. There's something about you that makes me think you're special. I think God sent you here to do something special. I don't know what that is, but I think God will tell you. As I got a little bigger, she added just another line or two. When you get to SMU, she said. (laughs) When you get to SMU, God will help you know what you're supposed to do. I didn't know for years that she went in the next room and whispered the same thing to my sister. Jacqueline, she said, when I look in those beautiful blue eyes of yours, I know there's something special about you. I can tell. When you get to SMU, God will tell you what it is. And then she did the same to our little brother, of course. And so when I was a senior in high school, I felt called to be a minister. My sister felt called to be an elementary school teacher. Our brother had a little more trouble finding his way. He was drafted into the Vietnam War right out of SMU. We all prayed with all of our hearts for two years he would come home safely from that war, and he did. And then decided God wanted him to be a Dallas police officer. We were sure he had lost his mind. He went through the academy with his Vietnam War experience, and now a degree from SMU as well. He moved up quickly in the Dallas Police Department, was made a SWAT officer in almost no time. He got married. They had two little boys. And then after eight years of that, his working rock concerts and everything else to try to make enough for a living for his family, he decided maybe God would let him do something different. He went back to graduate school. He didn't really like the big city. He moved back to our hometown to be a banker became the founding president of a new national bank and has been its president for more than 30 years. Last fall, he was named distinguished alumnus of our high school. She even convinced Dad his job was important. My dad didn't finish high school. He had five sisters. He was the only son. The father was much older than his mother. He was already old feeble when my dad was in his late teens. And so my dad dropped out of high school to keep the little farm running to help look after five sisters and his mother. The best job he got a couple of years later was working for a little natural gas company. In time, we got to move into a little company house. There were only four, 16 huge Ingersoll Rand compressors thumping away 24 hours a day. 
putting natural gas into a pipeline, a huge pipeline that went straight from East Texas to Pennsylvania, where Joel Pensera lived. <laughs> and when we would complain that we were going to miss the kickoff, and Dad was up there working on compressor number seven, he would say, we've got to keep the people in Pennsylvania warm this winter. <laughs> he decided he was doing something really important. He was keeping people in Pennsylvania warm. He had never been there. He didn't know anybody there. He believed they were God's children. They were important. They needed to be warm in the wintertime. Number two. I'm just a boy. I don't know how to do this. Three months after I said, I think I'm called to preach, two months after I was graduated from high school, the bishop sent me to two little country churches. The district superintendent explained this very carefully. There's nothing to this, he said. You go to college five days a week. You visit your parishioners all day Saturday. You write a sermon on Saturday night. You get up the next morning. You drive 17 miles to the smaller church. You preach at the 9 o'clock service. You've got plenty of time to drive 17 miles back to the bigger church. You preach. You've got all afternoon to write a sermon, which you'll preach at 7.30 at the bigger church, and then you go back to college. I had a Bible... I had been given when I was in the third grade. That was it. I had no library. I had a Bible. On Saturday nights, I would sit in that little parsonage, not another house in sight, out in the deep woods, and look for a sermon. I never contemplated suicide, <laughs> but I did wonder many Saturday nights how far could I be from here by 9 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> if I just drove straight to Tucumcari, New Mexico and pumped gas in cars for the rest of my life, nobody would ever know what happened to me. And then I would keep turning the pages. One Sunday morning, Gail came out. We were dating by that time. She came out to go to my two little churches with me. And on the way to preach to 16 people, I pulled over beside the road, ran out behind a tree, and threw up. I was so scared. She said, you're going to do this the rest of your life? <laughs> I said, hopefully not. I hope it'll get better. Well, my sister didn't have an easier time. When she got to the time at SMU that she was supposed to do practice teaching, they sent her into the poorest neighborhood in Dallas. Now, we knew rural poor, but we didn't know urban poor. In our rural area of East Texas, every kid might be poor, but they had a mom and a papa who were doing their best for them. In urban poor, my sister had little third graders who went home in the afternoon and no adult showed up even when they left for school the next morning. There was no one to fix supper. There was no one to say, brush your teeth now. Let me say prayers with you now. Let me help you with your homework now. Let me fix breakfast for you now. No adult on the scene. My sister would come over to the little one-room efficiency apartment Gail and I had there in graduate school and say, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. 
I have never seen little children like this in my life. They have no support. They have no encouragement. They have no supper. They have no breakfast. They have no one. Can I do this? Gay would be fixing supper. We would eat. The next day she'd go back and do it again. When she graduated, she decided, I'm not teaching in the poorest neighborhood in Dallas. Let me see, where in Texas are there rich people when kids have a lot of parental support? And she decided the Man's Space Center just south of Houston. Clear Creek Schools. She applied, they hired her. She went down to teach. She had seven kids the first year whose daddies were astronauts. She had other children in her classroom, had PhDs in nuclear science. And one little girl who had leukemia. Her sister would drive into Houston where I was pastor. She'd sit down with Caleb and say, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. MD Anderson Hospital is doing all it can do. Hundreds of preachers, uh, people are praying for this child, and she is getting worse every week. I cannot do this. Gay would be fixing supper. We'd eat, and she'd go do it again the next day. She did it 30 years. She did it 30 years. Because God called her to. Because God wanted her to. Because she felt she had been sent to this time and this place to do something significant. Number three. Jeremiah began in the reign of Josiah the king. Those of you who have been in serious Bible studies here recall Josiah. Yes, that was a hundred years after the northern tribes had been absolutely obliterated by the Assyrians. Only the two southern tribes, Judah, remained, their capital city, Jerusalem. Josiah, one morning, heard a knock at the door. Priests came running in saying, Your Majesty, last night we were cleaning out a room at the temple and we found a fifth scroll of Moses. It was the book of Deuteronomy. Jewish scholars, Christian scholars are all convinced ink was still wet when they brought it in. It wasn't written by Moses 500 years before. It was written by the priests that week. But they believed if Josiah thought it was written by Moses, he would pay close attention. He did, in fact. He attempted meaningful reform for the next 12 years. And then the Egyptians marched up from the south. There was a huge battle at Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, called Armageddon, Armageddon and he was killed. It was all downhill there until the Babylonians arrived in 587. So what is that? It means for part of Jeremiah's career, things went really well, and then things went really badly. 37 years ago, I had just been appointed pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church in Beaumont, Texas, Dr. Charles Allen at First Methodist Houston, Dr. Tom Shipp at Lover's Lane in Dallas, Dr. D.L. Dykes at First Methodist Shreveport, Louisiana, had decided to have a meeting. They invited the 25 pastors of some of our biggest Methodist churches in America to fly into Dallas for 24 hours. They would meet at noon with a blackboard. They would establish an agenda. What would one like to hear the other 24 talk about? 
and write it on the board. Now, how many want to hear this? How many this? This prioritize the whole thing. Work as hard as they could till about 10 o'clock that night. Get up the next morning and go again till 12 noon. Everybody would fly away home. My church wasn't really one of the 25 biggest, but Charles Allen was my friend. I'd been his associate all those years in Houston. He invited me, and I've been 36 out of 37 years. I missed one one year. That group was here in Tulsa just last month at the Ambassador Hotel. I was their host again from 12 noon on Wednesday, 12 noon on Thursday. They flew away. First year, 37 years ago, they talked about their churches, what was going well, not so well. The next year they did the same. And third year it was Tom Ship's time to lead. Some of you recall that Tom Ship had built his church in North Dallas of AA groups, small groups of recovery. So he was big on sharing, sharing one story. He said, I'm going to share a little bit of my story. Nobody else has to, but if you want to, I for one would like to hear your story. And so he told part of his and then somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. For two years, I had sat and looked at this group just sort of with my mouth open. I couldn't believe that I was actually sitting at the table with these men I'd heard about all of my ministry up to that point. I heard about all of them, knew almost none of them. I just sat there amazed. And now they begin to talk about their problems. One had a son in a federal prison. One had a wife who was dying of brain tumor. One had a wife who had gone into cardiac arrest. By the time they could get her heartbeat restored, she had suffered irreparable brain damage, did not know who he was. As they went around the table, every one of them had a major heartache. I flew home and said to Gail, if it could happen to them, it could happen to me. These are good men. These are outstanding men, and if terrible things have happened to them, it could happen to me. And then it did. We had a daughter who acted out, who entered into all kinds of self-destructive behavior, who died at 31. You see, sometimes you work in the reign of Josiah and everything goes really well and then you work in the reign of Jehoiakim and things go horribly wrong. As I've gotten older, I'm the only one who was at the first meeting who was there this year. Many of the others have died. Some of them were elected bishops. Some have been district superintendents. If you leave your church, then you're out of the group. Only one who was there 37 years ago I'm the oldest one at the table now. I listened to them again. I shared a little bit myself. I mean, this past year, I'd lost my mother. One of them had lost his. One of them had a grandchild. had been diagnosed as autistic now. Another had a child, young adult, bipolar, perhaps even schizophrenic. Tables, a table of people going really well for some, not so well for others. That's the way life is. Even for those who are called, even for those who answer the call to do something significant in this time and place, not all things go well all the time. One year, 
Things are going well for this group, not for this. Next year, things are going well for this group, not for this. Charles Dickens wrote a tale of two cities about Paris and London and began with one of the greatest first lines ever. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And that's true all the time about every city. Some things go well in Paris. Some things don't go well in Paris. Some things go well in London. Some things don't go well in London. Some things go well in Tulsa. Some things don't go well in Tulsa all the time. Can you hear God still calling? Then move to number four. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I've called you to do something special. It may be keeping folks warm in Pennsylvania in the wintertime. It's something special. Don't be afraid. Dr. Craig Barnes is a professor at at, uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. It's a Presbyterian school. Very good one. He wrote recently about one of his students. So this young man in my class, rather shy, really, for someone who feels called to be a minister, didn't speak up very often, but I learned to watch him, and when he would start to push his glasses up a little bit on his nose and then raise his hand, he always had something good to say. I mean, something everybody else needed to hear. Guess what? He was graduated number one in his class, summa cum laude. I was his faculty advisor, so I said to him, Ph.D., you could teach here one of these years. And he thanked me very much and said, I feel called to pastor a church. He accepted the first job he was offered, the professor said, the first one, and then asked me if I would come and be there for the Sunday he was installed. I had to look it up on a map. I flew, I rented a car, I drove three more hours until I finally got there. When I walked in, I could hear the old radiators banging as the hot water filled them. When somebody got too close to the microphone, it squealed. But the service went on, and then there was covered dish in the basement below. All these tables at this tiny little Presbyterian church filled with food. Several little children running around squealing. Grandmothers, granddaddies, mamas and papas. And I just watched them. They couldn't keep their hands off this young preacher. They shook his hand. They patted him on the back. They hugged him. Dr. Barnes said, I printed out a map from MapQuest, and I got lost twice trying to find the place. But that didn't matter to them. They had a new preacher who was going to bury, uh, baptize their babies, confirm their children, bury their mamas and papas, be with them on 4th of July and Labor Day, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter Sunday morning probably for years and years. And whether the seminary professor could find the place or not, they knew that God still knew the way.
God bless.